We're going to continue this morning in our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. We, we've been spending quite a bit of time in this book. I can't remember where we're at now, maybe week 18 or something like that, I want to say. I couldn't swear to it. Anyway, it's been really, really good. We're going verse by verse through this book. This book was written uh, to the church in Corinth. And I just want to remind you a couple of things that like the Corinth was this kind of meeting roads. Um, it was like this trade route where everyone traveled through Corinth. And I want you to understand that there was like tons of competing ideas in Corinth, right? And so Paul's writing back to the church there and he's going yes i understand that you understand you know how the culture works but know how the gospel works and know the way we are called to be the church a couple of things that we've been blessed with over the years at family bible church is that we don't we i hope we don't and we try not to confuse the buildings and the organizations with the people of god and we've talked about that in the series quite a bit right like so we are his church we sang that this morning i don't know if you noticed those words right we are are your church right and that's the truth of the gospel is that he is building his church his people here and that's what we've been studying then what does it mean to be the church how can we um, participate more fully in being the church and what is god's vision for the church and this all comes by way of revelation i'm gonna do something different this morning we haven't done it this way in a while but i'm just gonna read the text we're gonna study this morning and then i want to pray for inspiration we believe that god is speaking still speaking, and we want to hear from him. He is our teacher. And so uh, I'm going to read it. Um, you can turn to page 800 in one of our Bibles if you have them. If you brought your own, you can find it. If you have your phone, we have open Wi-Fi. You can snag a, off, your, um, off your phone as well, and you can pull that up. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 40. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three, should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpretation, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak as the others weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone can be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for women to speak in church. Did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. That's our text for today. Pray with me if you would. Uh, Father God, I thank you so much for your word revealed. I thank you for the, the power to convict and correct and compel us toward you. I thank you for the conviction of sin and the ways that we err. And I want to confess that as we enter into your word, Father, that we have no wisdom of our own, that we do not want a human construct this morning. We don't want a human revelation. We, we, don't, want to, we don't want to, of our own power, think more rightly, but what we need is divine teaching. Lord, would you teach us what your word means today? Would you instruct us in our innermost spirit, our innermost heart, that we could rightly understand and then apply and live out your word. 
And Father, as your Holy Spirit works for your glory and our good, I pray that we would willingly submit to your Lordship. We would follow you in this. Father, um, we have nowhere else to go for wisdom. We have no other name under all creation to ask but Jesus Christ. And we have no other ability but the Holy Spirit to know. So Father, would you teach? Would you give us in grace wisdom this morning? And would you instruct your people we might be more honoring, more fitting for the kingdom that's coming? We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we read through there, you might notice there, there's some verses you maybe have heard before, or maybe you've heard of before, some things that maybe have become contentious. And we're going to kind of walk through what it means to be worshipers. Um, each week in the series, we've been talking about an attribute of the church. Since the very beginning of the book, Paul's been kind of proclaiming attributes of the church, what it looks like to be the church. But I, I made a point, and it's really interesting, if you read through the whole book, it seems that it all hinges in 1 Corinthians 13, and then it becomes this application. So it comes from attributes to applications, how we are called to be the church, what we can do. And last week, we talked about being builders of one another, building up the church of Jesus Christ. And now this week, we're going to learn about being worshipers. Why would we gather together once a week? Why would we come to this space? Why would we put words on the screen and ask you to sing along? <laughs> or why would we sometimes not put words on the screen and ask you to sing along? That's a lot harder, isn't it? <laughs> you know? um, what is going on in this form of worship? Why are we gathered? Why do we continue? There are many in the culture that ask that very question. Why? Why should I bother? What is to be gained? What could God possibly do with the people together that he could not do with the people apart? Isn't God a God everywhere? Why couldn't God do the same thing on a Monday or a Tuesday, wherever I am in the world? So we're going to ask those questions this morning of the text. But this is all rooted in being worshipers of God. This is one of the calls we have to be the church, to build up the church and to worship God. This is, we are appointed for his glory, right? We are called according to his purpose that we might confess or profess who he is. So let's look at the text and let's see what the Lord says about is this worship. Um, we talked last week. By the way, this is all part of the same chapter, builders and worshipers. It's a part of the same chapter. But I want to back up one verse. I said it was wrong, 25, but I want to talk about what worship is, right? Because sometimes you, we use this language all the time. Um, I said about the church is the people, not the building, not the organization either. It's the people is the church of Jesus Christ. But what is worship? Like, what does it really look like? I mean, what is it tangibly? We, many people will instantly, and there's a reason for this, say, well, it's music. We, music is worship. Yes, and what else is worship? I want to remind you where Paul takes this turn in 1 Corinthians 14, and it's, it's in verse 25. This is what the word says. This is about, remember we talked about speaking in tongues, this kind of private, quiet time with God, and this proclamation or prophesying, speaking over the people of God that we could be edified, and Paul's making a case that to speak Five words intelligibly is better than 10,000 that can't be understood. Remember that? And after all these things, he says this about someone who had come in and had overheard this. And the secrets of his heart, let's just back up a minute. But if an unbeliever in verse 24 or someone who does not understand comes in while everyone is prophesying, he will be convicted that he is a sinner. He will be convinced that he or she is a sinner and will be judged by all. And you go, oh, that's terrible. And look at 25, though. This is, what, this is what worship is. And the secrets of his or her heart will be laid bare. That's the first thing. 
is there's this knowing. There's someone who knows me intimately. This is weird. I, 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 this is, we hear so much, like people come in and they say, it's like you were talking to me. Yeah, I feel that, right? Did you hear the two brothers who, who spoke words off of scripture this morning? I felt those. It's like that, yes, that's me. I feel that. So it's an awakening of our condition, a conviction of our sin, the secrets of our heart being laid bare. One of the most terrifying things I think we have as people is to be truly known and truly know, to be intimately known. Can you imagine for a moment what it would feel like to have the secrets of your heart laid bare? Well, if you've been gathering with the church, you probably felt it. Oh, that's, that's in here? That's in my heart? That's in my life? These things are known to God. They're no mystery to God. God is intimately involved in our lives and he knows Let's want the first thing then. Worship is having this intimate secrets of our heart made known to God. Our sin, our blessings, our struggles, everything is known to God. But then here's the second thing. He will fall down on his face. There's this idea that you don't stand in the presence of God. You don't. <laughs> There's no this, there's none of this pride, like look who I am in the presence of God, that, that when you're known in an intimate way like this, that you collapse onto the ground. You do not stand. We're face down. It begins to give us an image of worship. What does it look like to worship God? I, I, I wonder, church, have you ever, and I'm not saying for any any public witness, but in your own life, have you found yourself laid out on the floor before the Lord saying, God, I need you? Have you had those moments with God where you're praising him and worshiping him for who he is? This is a second kind of marker here in, in this one verse about what it looks like to encounter the living God, that the secrets of our hearts lay bare and we fall face down on the ground. And then the third is this, this is where we get the word, we worship God, we worship God. So that's the, what I want to dig into then. What does it mean to worship God? Our secrets of our hearts reveal we're face down and then we're in this position of submitted humility. Um, the, have you ever seen um, that thing that some people do? It doesn't happen a whole lot anymore because we're not really a regal society, but when you, when you kneel down and you kiss the ring of the king in submission? Or have you ever seen those um, movies where the warriors would come in from the field and they pull their sword out and they stick it down and they kneel down and they submit, you know? And you know the real hard thing I think that we have in our culture is like America is a non-submitting culture. <laughs> we don't know what it means to bend the knee to anybody anymore. No way. We overthrew the crown, right? And so you come in. I mean, you watch someone who bows their head, and you go, get up. What are you? Do you know who? Stand up. That's embarrassing. Don't, don't bow your head to somebody. But that's what it means to worship. And we ought to see that, that there is an expectation that in the presence of God, we would bend the knee, we would bow our head, and we would submit unto the Lord. As a matter of fact, it's even a little weirder than that. Because it means to kiss. It means to kiss toward. It means to affectionately desire or to long for, to submit yourself unto. This is the experience of worship. Yes, yes, Lord. You are the Lord. You are king. You are God. I am not. You rightly command me. I don't. I just came in from the field of battle, right? But it wasn't my sword that won the victory. It's you. And here's the model then. We come together to worship in this way. We're submitted unto him. 
Matter of fact, adoring is a funny thing, or, or revering. We revere the Lord. We help to set him first in our hearts. There's a, a really interesting um, Greek background to this word, and it means uh, a dog. Huh. Isn't that strange? Anybody dog people? Some of you are cat people. You know, God still loves you. That's okay. <laughs> You know, cats are like so cat, right? They're like, they're, they're arrogant, they're indifferent, they walk around with their tail in the air, they whip it once in a while. You know what I'm saying, right, about cats? How do dogs, how do dogs act? They're just like, hey, oh, you, you know, if you know me, you know I have a little dog that runs, he is so annoying. I'm like, bro, I don't have time for you today. He's like, hey, hey. He hangs out, you know, under the bed, and you get up in the morning, and he's like, oh, he's up, he's up. Let's go. Where are we going to go? It's like, you're not going anywhere. You live here. Like, I'm leaving. You don't get to leave. And then, and then it's really funny, but you think, like, what a weird thing. So does God say that we're dogs? Yeah, but not in a derogatory way. You know, before I came here this morning, I kid you not, I had closed my bedroom door, not locked it, but closed it. And you hear that, I'm in there shaving. I'm like, you got to be kidding me, right? And I go in there and I open the door and my dog runs out of the room and I realize he had no hope. He would never get out that door if his master hadn't showed up and opened it. And in the moment, I'm like, oh, this is us. I'm at the door. God, I need you to open the door. I need you to open the door. I don't think he's as annoyed as I am, though. <laughs> and he's like, okay, I'm opening the door. And then I run out. Oh, I'm out of the door. I did it. <laughs> Prayer works. You know? That we have these experiences, but it's to be in that position, needy, helpless, paws instead of hands, inability. I can't do this without you. I need you. There's this relational dependence that ultimately, if we aren't fed and cared for, we would surely die. And yet, the Lord is a good master. He's a great owner. He withholds things for the love of his children. He disciplines for their safety and wisdom. He corrects that they might remember him, that they are, they are dependent, that we are dependent on him. And so then in this moment of, of our hearts being laid bare and flung on our face, then we have this moment of worship. We're like, yes, it's you. It's you. It's not me. It's you. And we rightly position ourselves in dependent relationship on God. This is what it means to be part of the church, to be submitted unto him. And so this is what worship looks like. I hope you got a little bit of a vision for what worship is. And we're talking about what it, like, what it does or how it works, but like this is literally our position, worship, as that kind of needy, uh, desperate dog that's waiting for the master to speak or to give us attention or to let us out, to set us free. Oh, that God would set us free with his gospel. The fourth thing, then we can't pass it up since we're here in 25, is this. And so he will fall down and he will worship God. That's obviously a submission, confession, exclaiming, God is really among you. We come together because we want to know that God is really here amongst us. Um, this morning we got started Dale was like, um, hello, hello, and everyone's like visiting, like we were having a great time. Surely God is among us. And yet to be called to order that we could listen and learn from our master and understand that, that he has things for us today that are blessings 
to know. So, so we gather for these purposes to know God and to be able to exclaim, God is really here. We're going to talk about some ways that we maybe can flesh that out or understand more deeply that truth. So now we're going to move on here in 26. So 26, read with me if you would. What then shall we say, brothers? So Paul says, because of all this truth, because of the truth about tongues and this intimate language with God and this prophesying and God's ability to speak through his people, right, which he's been covering since chapter 11, by the way, prophesying in the church. He's like making a case for it. So what then should we say? When you come together, here's his instruction. This is what we should say. When you gather together, when you come together, everyone has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. I want to talk about a couple of things here. The first is this, that when we come together, everyone brings something. Everyone brings something, right? And so we have this gathering together, and it doesn't mean, you know, I've talked about the ecclesia, the, the church um, but this is actually a synthesis. It's, it's the coming together or the sending out together. It's when God's people get together and begin to share their giftedness that in those moments, something bigger than the individual people begins to happen. It's a synergy. I came out of corporate America before, and that was a big thing. Hey, let's get some synergy in this place because we knew that the teams were working against each other, and that was not helpful for the company, right? So what we want, we want the company internally to have synergy together. We're all on the same page, aiming for the same goals, using all of our skills for that purpose even more so we would partner with other organizations outside of ourselves to be synergistic say how can we help you how can you help us and become more efficient well this is the idea but it's a god-ordained thing that when we come together there's a synergy of god's people i want to then work through these four five things that paul lists here in ways that the church is synergistically better when we're together that something more happens when we gather than if we were to stay apart the question is can't god do something with me alone that he could do the same thing when we're together? And I think the word says, not so much. No. When you come together, everyone, each one has, and he lists five things each one has to bring, um, a psalm, a striking, musical of, um, a striking of musical strings, <clears throat> a song. It's literally, we've been reading, if you've been doing um, the uh, family, bio, family BC 365, it's Bible reading in a year reading along with us in that, you know that we are in the Psalms. I have been surprised at how difficult the Psalms have been to read, yeah? I, I found them full of mystery. Some of you I know love the Psalms. You're like, oh, I love the Psalms, and, and, and I appreciate that. I find myself wanting much more of a narrative structure. I don't think musically. I wonder what it means when it says to the to the tune of this particular, what was that song? What did it sound like? How do you say these words? They don't even rhyme. That's what I think a lot of the time. What does it mean? And then is there a place in our songs for lament? Is there a place in our songs where we're on our face and crying out, God, we need you to smite our enemies. We cannot achieve this without you. Is there room in our songs for the moments that we confess and we repent of our sin and we say, against you and you alone have I sinned? Are there moments in our songs we proclaim the salvation of the Lord that is coming even though we have not yet seen it come? Man, that's, the psalm is a book of songs written by people who had not yet seen the manifestation of Jesus Christ. And yet they fully expected that God was going to bring redemption in his time and in his way. What a powerful, powerful thing, a psalm. Each one has a song. Um, my favorite definition, by the way, that came, this is like straight from the Greek thing. It was literally this, pull, twitch, twang, play, sing. Pull, pull, twitch, play, twang, sing. Pull, twitch, twang, play, sing. That's crazy. It sounds like you're having an attack of some sort, honestly, doesn't it? 
Like, I'll be like, you know, everyone has one of those in them. Like, everyone has a song. Is that what it's saying? No, each has something to bring. Maybe you don't bring a song, but maybe you do. Let me ask a question about music real quick. Since most of us affiliate um, worship with music, um, what is it about music that so encapsulates our mind and our spirit? Like, thinking outside of the church context for a minute, what is it about turning on that song that you heard when you were like, usually honestly in your teenage years, that you're like, oh yes, this song. I mean, what is it about the songs that you begin to play in a room and the whole room starts to sing? And then you turn the song off and the room just keeps on singing the song. Isn't it crazy that God made us for music? Like, isn't that a pretty amazing thing? There's so many ways to communicate. We can tell stories and we can, you know, do all these other things. But there's something about music that's unique. There's actually a term for it. It's called an earworm. Have you ever had that song get stuck in your head? And you get so tired of that song in your head, you're like, just stop. Have you ever had that problem? I had that problem twice this week where things were like stuck in my head. I'm like, it has to stop. Make the song stop. And it finally did, by the grace of God. It just gets in there. And then the question becomes, when these songs get into our ears, what are they saying to us? What are the words that we're remembering? What are the words that we're ascribing internally to ourselves? How cool is it, though, that God made us for music? I'll tell you two quick stories. One is that um, we were, I was worshiping at another church. There was an elderly couple, and they, uh, it was a husband and wife, and he pushed his wife down to the front. She was in a wheelchair, and she was like this, kind of like this, and um, just in the wheelchair, and they were quite old. I mean, they, I mean really, I'm not going to put a number on it, but they were, they were old, aging. I mean, seriously. And uh, he pushed her down there, and then he sat down next to her, and he had his suit on, and he was sitting there, and then uh, they began to play the hymns with the organ. And she began to set up a little bit. And she began to say words with her mouth. And I was amazed as I watched her come to life. I'm like, wow. It's like she was waking up because of worship. She slept the whole way in. She slept all the way down the aisle. But when the church began to sing, she began to wake up. Her husband standing next to her, he was just singing. He was doing his own thing. But here she is in the chair, and she's setting up a little straighter, and she's saying words. And you go, what? And I say, yes. Absolutely. I was actually surprised a few years ago to watch a documentary called Alive Inside. And it's a documentary about people who are in memory care centers and they've forgotten their family, they've forgotten everyone, they don't remember who they are, and they forget even how to live, how to be. And this young person who was intrigued by the, con the connection of music to our brain said, what if we brought in music and we put in um, music in their ears and let them listen to music? What would happen? It couldn't hurt. Let's try that. And so they did this whole thing. I won't get too detailed, but they end up going to family and say, what, what generation they grew up in? What did they listen to? Did there any music when you were a kid you heard in your household? And they load those things on iPods. They put them in ears. You know what happened? People woke up. They woke up. They literally began to open their eyes and they started to speak. And the staff go, how is this happening? What is it going on? But God has made us for music. He's made us for these songs. He's made something about us that comes alive when we hear it. This is why so many of us have a soundtrack to our lives. Do you have a soundtrack to your life? You know, that sunny day, you're blasting down the road with the windows down. Is there a song that goes with that? Or is there a song for that really sad day when it's raining outside? You got that song? We, we have this in, innate connection to the, to the words, to the songs, to the sounds. So I have a question. The psalm says, God has given each one a hymn. And I wonder, or a psalm, uh, what song has God given you? And I mean that. 
Like now you go, man, you're maybe like me. You're like, God didn't give me a song. Okay, that's fair. But some of you, God has given a song to. What song has he given you? I'm going to ask an even crazier question. Do you think that's for the benefit of the church? Is it just for you? Or is it meant to, to, you think about these songs we sing each Sunday, it's because someone dared to share a song that God had given them in their heart. And they could have been like, you know, this is my song. I'm going to do this song. This is me. This is so good because I love to sing this song to God and it's me and God and that's so good. But they go, you know what? We're not. We're going to give this to the church and the church is going to sing the song. And then the community is blessed. What song has God given you? That's the first thing he lists. The second thing he says is a word of instruction. God has given each one a word of instruction, right? And this is a teaching or a doctrine, a, a, an applied principle, right? How do you do this? God has given his people the ability to instruct one another on how to do these things, right? So Christianity isn't this like far off, far off conceptual, yeah, I'm a Christian in my head, but my life doesn't show it. But it's like, how do you live it out? And honestly, church, if we don't get together on a regular basis and see brothers and sisters struggling to live it out, we're doomed to, I don't know how we're going to figure this out. If I can't watch and see good models of how to live it out, and sometimes, yes, church, bad models of how to live it out, I would not know how to live out my Christian faith. But I have to witness that, right? I have to see you, you have to see me struggle to live out our Christian faith. There's a word of instruction in there. It kind of reminds me as if, um, if you were uh, never ridden a bike and someone's like, ride a bike, and you're like, how to ride the bike, and you go, you just ride it. Well, that's not very helpful, but I might not even think it's possible to ride a bike. I can't, I can't balance. I, I've been walking my whole life. I can't do this thing until someone goes down the street. Ring, ring, ring. And you're like, what? And if you think I'm making that up, look at any competition or anything that we have the ability to do. People say it's impossible until it's possible. And then everyone can do it. Oh, I can do that too. I, did, I thought you couldn't do that. Ride a bike. But how? Well, watch me. You do it like this. You hold this. And you get on this part. You start to pedal this way, right? You, you balance. It's going to be a little wobbly for a while. It's okay. Keep trying. Keep trying right? Or, uh, or you walk beside him. Uh, the funny thing was in my family, I wasn't allowed to do that. I thought that moment, that moment is so overhyped about running behind him with a seat, like, ha, 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 and letting go of the kid, you know? My kids are so stubborn. They're like, no, don't touch my bike. <laughs> anyway, your, your mileage may vary. Maybe you had kids that weren't like that. But what is it like? How do you do it? I'm going to catch you when you fall. I'm going to come over and go, oh, you skinned your knee. It's okay. Try again. This is the Christian life. Some of you are here today, listen to me, to give instruction or encouragement to someone else. Some of you are here to say, no, 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 let's do it this way. Or some of you are here to say, man, I wrecked hard last week. And you go, you know what? That's okay. Get up. Dust yourself off. Back on the bike. Let's go. Show me. Show me. Because Christian life is about living it, not about thinking it. It's about doing it. It's about being it. It's about how we live together the gospel of Jesus Christ. So think, on, think honestly for a minute with me. What have you learned that you could teach to someone else? What has God taught you, or what has someone else taught you about the Christian life, listen to me, that you could go out now and you could teach someone else that, that you could instruct them in the ways of the Lord? Now, some of you may be thinking, well, I'm, I don't really know if I have learned anything. I feel like I don't know. I, I guarantee there's something that you've learned that you can teach. One of our principles here actually is that we are learners who teach and teachers who learn. There's this constant cycle of growing together, understanding more deeply. And, and sharing what we've learned with other people. This ought to become a normal part of our life. So everyone's been given the opportunity to, to, be, to teach a word, a doctrine to share. 
The third thing he lists there then is what? A revelation. And this is that unveiling or unmasking of something that's not yet known. It's an enlightening of one another, right? So we come together. There may be things that we're seeing wrongly, and a brother or sister can say, you're not seeing that rightly, and they can reveal. They can literally lift the blanket off of our eyes. We can see for the first time a new way or a new path or some new angle that we had not yet seen before. I wonder in your life, and I'm going to ask this backwards a little bit because I was thinking about it, and I'm like, well, 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 what would I have to reveal to someone else, right? That's why I started thinking like a word of revelation, like how do you have a word to reveal from someone else, right? But then I asked the question this way, what parts of my life would be helped if someone else were to reveal something to me? Like what area of my life am I not seeing clearly, and I need someone to come along and say, oh, just look, I see. And that's a different question. When we ask that, we begin to think about, man, there are areas, are there areas of your life where you could use a different perspective? Are there areas of your life that you could use someone else to come alongside and say, after listening to you and your situation, say, here's another thought. I know you think it's A, but what if it's maybe B or C or D to give you some possibilities? Because the problem is we become so narrow in our thinking, but... Paul says here that each one has been given a revelation to share. And, and I'm not, again, I'm not saying that all of us have all these things, but all of us have some of these things. I would actually say probably none of us have all these things, but all of us have some of these things. That's probably why I say that, right? That we need one another. There's a codependence in the church relationship, being the church. And that we need a new perspective. I, I, I just have to flesh that out for one more step here. But you know what that requires, a revelation or uncovering? You can have a divine revelation, absolutely. Someone just walks up to you and just speaks truth over your life. And you're like, wow, that was amazing, right? But it might also require that you risk relationship with somebody. It might require that you would say, you know what I'm really struggling with right now? You know, one of the most um, honoring and difficult and humbling things is when I have a brother or sister who's with me and they say, you know what I need, I need you to really pray for me about? You know, I've really been having a hard time with. And there's a holy moment where I'm like, what? You know? And it's not because I'm a pastor. That's not why they're asking. It's because, because I've been in context where not everybody's a pastor, and they just, they just lay that out there. And you're like, this is a holy moment that we can bear this burden and maybe give a perspective, right? And so we do, and we pray for revelation. So, so it might take you risking relationship to have a breakthrough. It might take you sharing an intimate struggle to have a new perspective that you could have never saw without God or his church. That's three. Here's number four then. Uh, we talked about this a little bit last week, by the way. If anyone, uh, or here, a revelation, a tongue, a tongue, that means a language or a glossa. And you remember last week we talked about this idea of tongues and what tongues, the purpose of tongues in the church are. And it, the best I can come to here is it's an internal conversation you're having with God because Paul juxtaposed it with a prophesy, which, prophesying, which is an external proclamation for the Lord. And he says that they are using your mind more um, whenever you're prophesying. You have to think about what you're about to say. But there's this intimate language with God that we just talk to God directly and he knows what we're saying. We don't have to worry about articulating these things. Right? But Paul says that some of you have been given tongues, the gift of tongues, this idea of being able to speak a language or an intimate speech, right? This quiet, this thing that God is doing in, inside of us. And I'm not going to spend more time on that right now because Paul's going to expound on that a little bit here in a minute about what it means to have a tongue in the church, what it means to have tongues, and how we should use, or how, not use, but how we should experience those things in the church. But it's this idea of a, of, a, of a quiet, of a prayer language, an intimate language. 
And then the, the, the fifth and last is, an, or an interpretation, he says, a tongue or an interpretation. And he, again, he's going to talk about this in a second. But interpretation is a translation, an explanation, an expounding, an equivalent making, right? And uh, you might think, well, obviously, when he says everyone's given a tongue and then everyone's given an interpretation because you've read ahead, you're like, this is going to be connected, the interpretation of the tongues. Yes, but there's more than just tongues being interpreted. As a matter of fact, I'd make the case to you that any time we get together for a Bible study, there's interpretation happening. We read what the text says, and then we're like, but this is how we do this. It's an interpretation of the text. Some people will kind of complain about the Bible, and they'll say, well, there's so many interpretations. How do you know which one is right? Well, they're all, those are translations, but the way we read it and apply it to our lives are interpretations, right? So how does this apply in our lives, and how, how, how can we know that more deeply? Anytime we do Bible study, we're doing some interpretation, not of tongues, but of God's word, right? A revelation of truth. Matter of fact, church, right now, this conversation we're having is an interpretation of this text. That's what we're doing. It's like, this is what the word says and this is what, what it could mean, right? And then we begin to flesh it out together. This is why, by the way, after a sermon, it's often, hey, maybe you didn't agree with something I said. Maybe you agree. Maybe you think I'm crazy on something. Come and let's have a conversation about that. Why? Because we all need to be corrected. And unless someone says something out loud, you can't be like, hey, that's not right. That's not right. And that's part of the job of the church. We're going to hear that in a minute as well. So Paul says everyone's given a tongue, everyone's given an interpretation. That's just kind of expounding upon what God is doing, okay? And so that's the first thing. And now we spend a lot of time there. That's okay because we intended to spend a lot of time there. But it's important to know that everyone is bringing something to worship. Everyone is bringing something to worship. And we're going to come back uh, to those things. All right, reading on now in verse 26 then. Uh, all of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. Now, my translation says the strengthening of the church, but it's the same word we talked about last week, which is the building up of the church. And so worship is, in fact, the church being built up. That is part of the, the gift of worship, that what we do when we come together is we build up God's church, or to say it more accurately, God's church is built up. Paul says all these things we've talked about, the Psalms, the teachings, the revelation, the tongues, the interpretations are done so the church might be strengthened. Remember we talked about being built up or might be a better spiritual house. That means that my spiritual house might be better after this and that your spiritual house might be better after this and that our spiritual house can be better after this. That somehow that coming together, the church is in fact built up. As a matter of fact, I want to make a brief point here about the language being used that is on purpose that it's interpreted the church being built up because what it's saying is that it's a side effect of worship. It's not that the church is trying to be, it's not that the church is trying to build us up and therefore worships, that's out of order. It is instead that the church worships and as a side effect of genuine worship, the church is in fact built up. Does that make sense? So this is, a result of worship. It's a side effect of coming together, of singing songs, of teaching, of revelation, of tongues, and of interpretation, that a side effect of all these things is the church is in fact strengthened. And Paul makes that case here in 26. All these things must be done for the strengthening, the building up of the church, that the church might be built up. So that's our participation through worship, remember? Um, all right, verse 27. If anyone, now I told you to expound on this tongues idea. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak at one time. And then someone must interpret. So now he's going to directly link tongues and interpretation. And fair enough, right? So he's like, this shouldn't be going on in the church without some interpretation. Why? All these must, uh, uh, let's see. Um, 
If there's no interpretation, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. And so Paul's like going, look, if you're going to speak tongues aloud in the church, then the church needs to have some understanding, edification of what those tongues are, not just tongues for the sake of tongues. And he makes this case here, right? So he's like, it's not to say, and he's going to say it at the end, so I hope you're with me on this. It's not to say we ought not have it, but if we have it, we ought to have some understanding clear thinking about what it actually means that we'd agree with. Yes, that's what's being said. And by the way, that even means the person who spoke in tongues would say, yes, that's what God is saying. There's an internal knowing, but there's an external revelation. And so Paul says, this is, um, this is part of, uh, of being in the church. I want to just spend a second on this idea. If anyone speaks in a tongue or two or three at the most, he's getting to an idea of order. We're going to come back to that in a second. Should speak, but one at a time, again, order, and someone must interpret. And so he says this, if there is no one to interpret, the speaker should keep quiet in the church. And then this last part is, and speak to, wait, what does it say? If there is no interpretation, the speaker should keep quiet and speak to himself and God. Notice it doesn't say stop. It doesn't say if God's revealing something to you in your heart, you should, you should stop the conversation with God about what God's doing in your heart. It's not what it says. It says he should be quiet in the church, not speak aloud, but continue to speak between him and God. So worship is actually a, a, a combination of private and public experience. It's a combination of private and public experience. As a matter of fact, I would even say that worship flows from a private experience into a public experience. That's kind of our, how we do worship, right? We don't get together because we're here and we worship. We come together to worship individually, and as a result, the group worships uh, together. A couple of uh, th thoughts on this principle-wise is often we will come in and we'll be like, hey, what did you think of that band? What did you think? Eh, eh, they're okay. They're not, not my cup. What do you think of those hymns? I don't know. The hymns are not my thing. I just... I struggle with hymns, you know, they're slow and old and remind me of, you know, whatever bad memory I have. And what is, what is the wrong question? What question is being asked? How is that external experience to the way I experience God today? And, and, and here's a better question. How is my heart? Like, how is my heart if I've come together and decided that I'm here today to judge the band, perform for me, versus I've come together to worship with the band. Let me sing with them. I've often said to people who've said, um, the band wasn't very good. And I'm like, sing louder. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> no one will appreciate that more than the band. <laughs> Did you hear the people sing today? Oh, it was glorious. Why do you think that musicians often do that thing where at the end they're playing and they're singing and you're like, this drummer's awesome and the guitarist. And then everyone goes, shunk. They stop and the crowd just goes, ah, they sing out. And you see the worship leaders go, yes. Now that can be turned toward ill intent, worship me. But in the best of times, it's no, we worship. All of a sudden, the people on the stage are just five people with instruments. And they stop and they just sing with the crowd. And the crowd sings and the people sing and it's glorious. And God is honored. And his people are together. Like that's good worship. You ask a question then. When I'm sitting there, I'm like, ah, this is, what's going on in my heart? Did I, come to, did I come to just stand outside and judge, or did I come to participate? Did I bring my heart to worship? Did I come in with all my stuff and sing? For me, off-key, by the way. There's another question, though, too. You know, first is like, you know, that, but there are days that you might come in and you can't. 
can't sing. It's one of the gifts of the church. It's private and public experience. I, I don't even want to go today. It's been so hard. I just can't. And so, but you muster and you come through the door and you people are, hey, and some people are super happy. And you're like, I'm not super happy, but okay. And you just get through and you get to your seat and you stand there and then the congregation begins to sing. Listen to me. The congregation begins to save the words your soul needs to hear. And if you stay home, and if you just go, I'm, I'm, I'm not in the best place to worship today, you miss the blessing of being part of the body of Christ where we come together, and when one of us or two of us or five of us are having a bad day, by the grace of God, there's 20 who aren't, and they say the words that we need to hear to say, yes, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've had that experience before. I have. Need the church. Sing together. So then the question is different. It's not, it's not how is my heart, but it's are we going to allow, are we going to show up anyway? Are we going to show up anyway as the body of Christ, as the people of God? Listen to me. Even when things aren't going well, well, we stand. So the question then is where is your community of faith? Who are the people that you're surrounding yourself with? And are you doing that on those days of trouble? It's a, it's a private and public event. And I'm convinced that worship actually starts internally and manifests externally. It's not an outward show. It's not to prove. That's why I asked the question earlier about have you ever been on your face on the carpet pleading with the Lord? Not because it's a show, because nobody's watching. Nobody's watching. But do you find yourself there? That's not holier than anything else. I'm just asking the question. Is it genuine, authentic, crying out to the Lord? Because it starts in here and then it manifests publicly. I was talking uh, to some worship leaders about this, and I said, uh, it's not the worship leader's job to worship. It's the church's job to worship. It's the worship leader's job to encourage worship. But we worship, not them, us. We all do that. So that's his word here about how we are. Look at what happens, though. So we still have this internal. I don't want to miss this. Verse 33, for God is, or I'm sorry, verse um, 28. Uh, no, no, I'm going to find it. Yeah, verse 28, if there's no interpreter, the, the, the speaker should keep quiet and the church and speak to himself and God. So he continues internal dialogue as part of the body of Christ. But we begin, we continue to worship privately and publicly. This is what we do, right? So it's important. Um, now, moving on, verse 29, two or three prophets then should speak and the others should weigh their words carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is setting down the First, the first speaker should stop, for you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone can be instructed and encouraged. So now he's going to move from this idea of tongues and, and um, speaking in tongues and interpretation to the idea of prophecy, of speaking truth to the people. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. He's like, no one's controlling you. You can hold your words. You can wait your turn to speak. And that's the next principle we're going to have is that worship is following one another. And I mean this because actually I said it back when the tongues too. It says if any of you have, uh, has a tongue, uh, two or at most three should speak one at a time. There's this idea that we wait upon someone else in worship. We don't have to. We don't have to share our gift, but we can share our gifts in an orderly manner. And so there's this idea of we follow one another. We, we literally come after one after the other. That's what he says here. If a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop because you can prophesy in turn so everyone's encouraged and instructed by what's being said. The spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. And so uh, you have this opportunity then to follow one another. Um, by the way, don't miss this, that it says that 
when two or three prophets are speaking, that's not all the people doing the work because what it says is, and all the others should discern carefully what is being said. So it's not just the speaking of the word that matters, but it's our engagement in hearing, listening, and thinking through what the word means and, and to say yes or no. Actually, the word there does mean to judge. To judge, is this the right teaching or not? Is this the right understanding or not? And we begin to discern those things in our heart. And so it's not, again, we go and there's that one dude doing that one thing, but we're all doing this thing where we're listening actively and applying it to our lives this is the part of following one another that we begin to listen and discern distinguish or judge the teaching that's being shared with us okay we're going to pick up pace here a little bit uh let's see the spirit of prophets are subject to the control of prophets verse 33 because god is not a god of disorder but of peace and so a couple of things that paul said now is that like one or uh he says if you have a tongue two or at the most three should speak one at a time and someone should interpret so there's edification for the body and he says if you have more than one speaker two actually he says two or three should speak ironically if two or three should speak it's almost like a command there that that's how it should be and then he says in that way um then but doing it all in order and he says why because god is not a god of disorder but of peace and so ultimately worship is an act of peace and I say that in every sense of the word it's an act of peace between God and us as his people it's an act of of, of peace between God and um, sinners us right it's an offering it's a peaceful resolution to a severe problem called sin and so this is an act of peace, worship is. But it's also an act of peace to one another. Look what Paul's advocating for you here. If you don't have an interpreter, hold your words and just speak to God internally. If you do, maybe two or three people can share, but it must be interpreted. If you have a word to instruct, yeah, do your instruction, but do it in order and let other people instruct as well. And so there's this idea that we should um, have peace with not just God, but one another and how these things happen. There's an orderliness that's asked for. Okay, as with all the congregations, this is verse 33b, as with all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but they must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for women to speak in the church. Now, this is actually something that someone said, have you read this week's text? This is going to be exciting. And I'm like, I have, and uh, I guess you're talking about this. Um, because this is one of those things that you've heard said maybe even if you've never gone to church this idea that women ought not speak in church and it's like what is Paul getting at you have to think about what he's been saying about orderliness and about peacefulness about how God is one God who's revealing himself through his people and in all the congregations the word says of the saints women should remain silent in the churches but then there's a key word here it says they're not allowed to speak but must be in submission and by the way if you ever want to do something productive, do some studying on the word submission because submission is to be found throughout the church. This isn't a dirty word used for women only. That's not how submission is used. We all submit to one another. We all submit to the Lord and we also submit to one another. And, and I won't go off on the t thing here, but I'm just saying that that's in the text literally every time we're called to be submission, submissive, submissive to one another. But here he's making a particular case. And he says women should be in submission uh, and then says this, as the law says, I have to say this. I was like, where does the law say women have to be in submission? And I could not find it. I couldn't. Now, maybe after this, you're going, I'll tell you where it's at. I'd love to hear. And maybe I should look at it more and find it. But I couldn't find where the law says women should be in submission, except that in this instruction to the church, Paul says they ought to be. But then 35 says this, if they want to inquire, they should ask their own husbands. And so then you go, wait a minute. So Paul's talking to families here. I, I don't fully understand this, but he's saying, 
that, that somehow if you have a question to ask, wait, and look at what it says, wait and ask in your own home. So, so I want to say that my understanding of this, and I didn't think it was all that controversial until I started really like reading the text out of context, but worship is a strengthening of families. Like there's this idea that if we're coming together as the people of God, he's the God of households, right? So you have individual relationships with God, then you have household relationships with God, and then you have the communal relationship with God. And he's going, if you have things to say, talk about it in your homes. If you have something you disagree with the guy in the front of the room about, then talk about it with your husband when you get home and have a conversation about that. You might have, and this doesn't say you're even wrong about it, right? But it's like, don't do these things publicly. Why? I want to remind you that back in, in 1 Corinthians 11, 3, Paul talks about headship, and this is a setup for this. It says, now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and that they said there is wives as well, not that every man is the head of every woman, and the head of Christ is God himself. And so there's this idea of spiritual headship that Paul's been pushing for, and there's a right orientation of spiritual thinking. In other words, being submitted to one another, there's this building up of the people of God. And so if you can imagine now this concentric circle of how this works is, I have a revelation from God. I talk to my family about it. If I'm a child to my parents, if I'm a husband to my wife, and my wife to my husband, and we begin to talk about it, and then we come together as a church, and we share what we have discerned to be true as a, as a family. And so there's this idea that it's strengthening families. As a matter of fact, probably more radical than that is the idea that you should leave the service and go home and talk about it in your homes. This is a normal part of a worship experience. When you leave the service, you should have conversations with those that you love the most and say, what was that about? What did you think of that whole thing about women wearing hats and men not wearing hats? What's the deal with that? What's the deal with whatever the doctrine is that's being taught? Those are per particularly um, not only allowable, but needed conversations in that space where you know people love you. You know they have your best interest, and you can have these conversations openly with one another. So if they want to inquire women, wives, I should say, about something, they should ask their own husbands at home because it's disgraceful for women to speak in the church. And it's like, disgraceful for who? The husband, maybe? The relationship? What harm could come? I don't know. But Paul says this is how it is in all the congregations. By the way, one uh, final thought is that this has been such a difficult text for some people to deal with. I found someone said, hey, the NASB doesn't have it. And I respect the NASB. I'm like, maybe this is even found in the texts. And so I went and looked, and no, they were lying. It is in there. <laughs> they just didn't like it, and so they took it out. And they go, look, we found a translation without it. We cut the verses out manually. <laughs> no, it's in every translation. So we have to contend with it then. What does it mean? How does that look in your household? What conversations are allowed? And let's just say this real quick. It's not about lording it over anybody. That's the wrong thing. Husbands and wives ought to want to have conversations with each other and with their children about good doctrine. We have things we don't agree about. So let's talk about that. It's a strengthening of the family. As a matter of fact, I would say it's pushing us into deeper relationship to have conversations when we get home about spiritual matters. It's a deeper thing. Hopefully you're doing that. And then after Paul hits that thing, he kind of wraps up with his final thought, asking two questions. Did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has ever reached? He's like, how are you so unique? that only you can say these things, and only you can be used in this way, and only you have this word. Did it start with you? And there's this idea then that, no, worship is rooted in the Lord. It's rooted in the Lord. Did the word of God originate with you? It did not. Are you the only people it has ever reached? You are not. 
I am not, right? Like, I didn't start this. It wasn't my good idea. The word says, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I have said is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. So to Paul's like, there's unity in the church in these issues, that the Lord is giving revelation. It's his gift to the church. That worship is ultimately rooted in God himself. Um, can I tell you a prayer that I pray almost every Sunday? Almost every Sunday. Not here, by the way, in my life. I pray this. God, glorify yourself through your church. I don't particularly say, God, give me word. God, do the... No, no, no. God, glorify yourself. Glorify your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Manifest your goodness amongst your people. We desperately need him. This whole idea of worship is tied up in who God is himself. Why do we sing the name above all names, Jesus Christ, our King? Because he is our King. He is our Lord and he is our Master. It's God himself that glorifies himself in worship through us as people. And we ought to participate willingly in that. The word of God did not originate in me or you, but in God himself. The word became flesh. Last thought then, therefore, my brothers, sisters, be eager to prophesy, but don't forbid. I told you it was coming. Don't forget, forbid speaking in tongues. That internal, don't, don't quash the, what God's doing in people's lives intimately. No. Yes, we celebrate what he's doing intimately, but we celebrate also what he's doing publicly by the grace of God manifest for our good. Everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Um, I'm going to ask you to pray with me, but about maybe how God would be calling you to share a gift. Father, I've, I thank you so much for your word and for the opportunity we've had to explore it maybe a little more deeply. And Father, we, we don't want to be people who are afraid of hard things, and yet we, we see things and we're like, Lord, you teach us what you're trying to reveal to us. Father, maybe there's um, contentions, maybe there's struggles, maybe there's discord, Father, that needs to be unified in who you are. Would you come and bring peace by the power of your spirit? Would you help us? Father, I confessed earlier, I, you know, I'm a rebellious people amongst, uh, I'm a rebellious person amongst rebellious people that, that, that we have a tendency to thumb our nose. Would you help us to submit again unto you, to profess again our need for you, to indeed worship you in spirit and in truth that we could be called rightly uh, yours, holy and set aside for your purpose. Um, Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters who are here today and who you've given a, a you know, a word or a interpretation or a gift of teaching. and You've given them these revelations or songs to sing. Father, would you glorify yourself through your church? And would you manifest your goodness amongst us? And may we have an experience of you that would, we would walk away and say, surely you were there. Surely, Father, you're here. We thank you so much for the gospel of Jesus Christ that redeems sinners like us. We thank you that we're off the worthiness trap, that we're worthy because you say we're worthy that we're saved because you say we're saved, and that we know you intimately. Help us to live that out in our lives in a real way, Father. I pray against all the false stuff. I want to authentically know you and worship you in the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.